Dotnet Rocks episode 848 with guest Mike Hadlow. Recorded live Tuesday, February 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, this is Carl Franklin, and it's time for .NET Rocks. Richard Campbell's here. How are you? Welcome back. I'm doing well. I'm, uh, you know, married for 18 years. Congratulations, buddy. Uh, you know, it's not a whole lot hard to that, actually. Not being an idiot helps. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You've done the other alternatives. They're way harder. Than yeah, just, uh, yeah, it is. It's harder. <laughs> change, is, change is good. You go first. Yes, yeah, it. Well, thanks very much. I'm living happily ever after, uh, you know. She makes me a better person. No other way to say it. You know, I've been getting into doing live video streaming, and uh, we did a stream of your keynote from the Dallas Day of .NET, which was a lot of fun. And it turns out in Dallas, in the place where we were, the best internet connection for upstream bandwidth yeah. was my Nokia Lumia 900. <laughs> 12 megabits up on my phone. That, is that your 900 or your 920? I'm sorry, my 920, yeah. Right. And it, the, those LTE connections, they have pretty epic bandwidth. Epic. Yeah, For it's amazing. For a phone, 12 megabits up. I love it. Streaming. All that right, well, funny. anyway. Better know framework. Hit me. You better. What do you got? I'm going back to the framework for a better know framework. Wow, it's been a while. To a class I can't believe I've overlooked all these years. I, I can't wait for this. System.net. Dot .ftp web request really implements a file transfer protocol client if you go to tinyurl.com/dotnetftp.netftp okay it's been there since .net2 and we've totally missed it all this time i i don't ever recall seeing this or or talking about it maybe i did and i'm just getting old i don't know <laughs> well at the same time you know ftp has its own issues yeah it certainly does however you know if you get something that works and you keep everything the same, okay. Yeah. But there are samples. Deleting a file from an FTP server, downloading a file, and asynchronously uploading a file. Ooh. Yeah. Fancy. Yeah. So, you're right. FTP has come and gone. I agree. However, if you didn't know it's there, now you do. Yeah. There's no excuse for writing your own, that's for sure. Well, who would do that? <laughs> you know, the reason I'm laughing is because I actually wrote a book where I did write an FTP client with sockets in VB4 and then Ooh. again in VB6. All right. Wow. Well, anyway, Richard, who's talking to us? Way back. Way, way back. Yeah. Uh, I grabbed a comment off of show 843, and that's the one we did with Demis Bellet talking about service stack. Right. Which was very well received. And this is a comment from Jason uh, Wigledowski. How's that for a name? All right. I think I got it. Jason, you can laugh at me if I didn't. Uh, Service Stack is a really compelling tool. I have played with the demo and found it extremely easy to use. Redis looks really interesting, too. What keeps me from using these tools is security. With all the recent websites getting hacked, I worry about not using tools like WCF or Web API. It would be cool if you guys could get Tony Hunt or Dominic Beyer on to speak about how to secure OSS web frameworks. 
It may be that I'm just paranoid, but when I see tools like Redis, uh, for example, have no ACL features, how can they truly be secure in a distributed fashion? Really? It just seems to me that using IP filtering to secure a server is not the best of ideas. Mm. There's probably something I'm missing, and I would love to hear from the experts of what they think. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Uh, Jason, I, you know what? I'll pursue this for you, but I got to tell you, you know, there's nothing special about open source being more secure or less secure. You know, it's all a question of how you connect to things. And for better or worse, even stuff like WCF, largely protected with HTTPS. You know, there's, there's only so much you could do that as actually transportable and uh, works cross-platform as well. And uh, you got to follow it from there. You can get pretty nutty once you start going down that path with client-side certificates and so forth to be, you know, quite restricted and quite protected. But uh, you also impair the ability to share things. Uh, this, this, it is a good conversation. I think more from an architectural point of view than anything else. So you know, it's been a while since we've had Dominic on. Heck, it's been a while since we had Troy on. So right. we could probably have him back and, and embrace this for you. So thanks for the great show idea. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses a month and offering a free 10-day trial with 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Mike Hadlow, works as a freelance.net developer and architect. He writes a blog, Code Rant, and is the author of several open source projects, including Suteki Shop, an e-commerce application, and EasyNetQ, a simple API for RabbitMQ. He lives in Lewis on the south coast of the UK. Welcome, Mike. Hello. I must say your Skype connection sounds very good. Oh, excellent. And now, as soon as I said that, we're going to get... <laughs> <laughs> Don't be cynical. I'm sorry. We we had, you know, Skype is a funny duck. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it works great for 15, 20 minutes, and then somebody's downloading a torrent or something, and you're screwed. I don't know. It's a neat, you know, Yen Trey back a couple of shows ago talked about, you know, it's a peer-to-peer technology. Yeah. So sometimes the peers get grumpy. <laughs> it's just a miracle that it works at all. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm of the Louis C.K. mind, which is, you know, when people complain about technology, just remember what's going on here. Yeah. When you, you're <laughs> in a chair in the sky. Right. <laughs> that, you're, that you sat on the tarmac for an hour is, ir- you know, irrelevant. And after that, did you fly through the air miraculously? <laughs> did you experience the miracle of human flight? <laughs> yeah, when people, I love the way he says, you know, when people get mad because, a, you know, a text came late. It's like, it had to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. Well, uh... We thought we would talk to you uh, and revisit the whole idea of queuing because, as Richard was saying before the show, things have changed. You know, the the, the queuing landscape changes. It's dynamic, and um, there's uh, some great products out there, and you are are the author of EasyNet Queue, which uh, is an API for RabbitMQ. And so That's right. if we just concentrate on the API, we're done. I mean, it's so easy, as the name implies. So let's talk about queuing. What is... Um, what what's the state of queuing? 
Yeah, queuing. It's sort of it's kind of an idea that's come of age. It's been around for a long time, though. I mean, we're not. It's not, not talking about anything new particularly, but uh, it seems to have. It's come out of really high end areas. Like mm. I know they use it a lot in the financial services in London. Sure. So it's been there's there's been quite a sort of hotbed activity there. All the rabbit ends you guys are based in London, for example. Well, you have your uh, your great example of Fifteen Below, the travel uh, company that used uh, RabbitMQ and EasyNet Q. Their case study is probably as good as any illustrate the power of queuing. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting thing because um, when I first uh, so I work as a freelancer and I, I I kind of get called in to help people out with um, with their sort of development issues and 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 whatever and uh 15 below we're using a very sort of uh, a, a typical pattern you find in a lot of um enterprise shops which is used to, to use to use a database as a, as a queue effectively yeah so you have a big table and um stuff happens and you insert records into the table usually with a status flag of some kind and then other services come along and query that table mm-hmm. you know pull a record out do some work, update the status to say that you know they've done that work, and then the next thing in the chain gets that record out, updates the status, you know, mm-hmm. and so it goes on through mm-hmm. to the end. There's some very nice things about that pattern. I mean, you can do a simple SQL query, for example, to find out you know where things have got to. Right. You know, something gets stuck. You know, it's just a question of, of digging in the database table to find out. But there's lots of downsides to it too. It doesn't doesn't scale particularly well, and you have lots of problems around. Um, contention and interestingly one of the biggest problems the 15 below had was actually deleting the records <laughs> isn't that funny it's true it's true it's one of the things that you know a sql server is actually deleting is one of the hardest things you can do for sure in a, in a really high scale environment so um you know we have like these terabyte tables that are just impossible to kind of chop off the end so that that was that was a big problem too so we started looking around for, I mean, I'd, I'd done messaging systems before I, I, I went to help uh, 15 Below. So um, we, sort of, we, we sort of evaluated a number of different products and just RabbitMQ came out as the one that seemed to tick all the boxes as far as we were concerned. You know, most people that are not doing queuing every day are deeply immersed in this. MSMQ is the only queue we know. That's true. Yes. And that's what I've used before. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 um, I did a big project using Mass Transit. Have you come across Mass Transit? Oh, yeah. We talked to Chris Patterson uh, just a, a few shows back. Okay. Yeah. Good guy, Chris. He was really Amazing helpful, guy. Actually. We were using, we were using uh, Mass Transit. So um, I also went to, um, I sat at the feet of Udi Dahan in London for three days on mm-hmm. his uh, end service bus course as well. So I was very, very interested in those frameworks, which boasted on top of uh, MSMQ. Um, but MSMQ is fundamentally it's a it's a simple store and forward queue, and uh, and and it's distributed. So you need to do you have to do a lot of work to actually build an enterprise architecture on top of it. An end service bus and and mass transit can certainly help you do that. But what we were really looking for was a was a, a broker based product where we would have a simple point of um, maintenance and uh, administration. And also a sort of single point of configuration. You know, we could point everything at this one place right. and then just have it work without, you know, application A knowing where application B was that it had to talk to. You get into quite a sort of scary configuration problem there once you've got a sort of cat's cradle of services all talking to each other. 
So we were quite keen on a broker-based product, and uh, and we were quite keen on something that could do more than just store and forward queues for us. So messaging patterns like publish, subscribe, and request right. response, which is stuff you normally see in something like in Service Bus or you know, heaven forbid, BizTalk or even WCF yes. for that matter. I mean, there's a lot of pub-sub uh, infrastructure out there. There is, yes. And it's all, yeah, and, uh, and and some places make it easy and some places not so easy. Right. Um, RabbitMQ has got this very nice uh, exchange binding and queue topology or architecture mm -hmm. internally. And it lets you, it, it, it's flexible enough really to let you implement almost any any messaging pattern you can conceive. And that was quite attractive to us. Although the complexity of that also led us down the road to, to building EasyNetQ. So that's kind of part of the story where EasyNetQ comes from. Interesting. Because, I mean, when you get back to the essence of a queue, it's just a one-way message. You know, the caller puts the message on, it sits in a queue, and it gets popped off by something else, and it's, that's it. It's, it seems so simple. It is simple, but you know it's it's an incredibly powerful idea when you think about it because it it gives you that it gives you something that helps you scale. It, it gives you this idea of um, I like it, temporal decoupling. I mean, that sounds like something out of Doctor Who. Temporal decoupler. You know. <laughs> yeah, he's got one of those in his pocket. Switch on the temporal decoupler. <laughs> but um, so what it means is that not both things don't have to be running in order to communicate. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it gives you something. When you've got a cat's cradle of web services, when everything's talking web services to each other, you only need one thing to fail. You know, if, if system A is, you know, if component A is talking web services to component B, that then needs to talk to component C in order to, to get the answer for component A. Right. Then any of that stack failing fails the whole thing, effectively. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in a message-based architecture built on queues, that store and forward queue gives you that temporal decoupling. You know, you don't have to have everything up at the same time. Right. And that gives you a lot of flexibility in it, you know, and, and, and scalability. And you also have that point of scale where now I can recruit multiple machines on the other side of this queue to execute all those queue items. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and RabbitMQ gives you, gives you the, the, the capability. I mean, out of the box, it gives you the ability to just add more, more backend services, you know, to load balance them or to do work sharing. Yeah. More reliability. Mike, before we go much deeper into this, for the folks that are still new to queuing and just trying to deal with uh, the, these concepts here, I think the one-way nature is the, the challenging part for a lot of folks, that I could send a request off to a queue, but all I get back is that the message has been successfully sent, whereas I'm used to, say, dealing with a web service where I send my request and I get my answer back. Uh, what, do, what do we do about that? How do people deal with it? Well, I think there's probably two. There's there's two sides to dealing with that. There's the there's the the first side is we can do request response if we arrange things in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and the other side is well, maybe we don't need a response. You know, maybe we don't really care about the response. Right. You right. know, maybe I'm just saying this has happened. Something's happened. You know, you care about it or not, as the case may be. You know, do we do we need to know that? that um you know somebody has actually received this information right and there be some kind of eventually consistent method of, of finding that out so i think with what we do at 15 below a lot of a lot of the, the um it's a kind of big workflow 
So we, we query airline reservation systems and get information out of them and then take that and apply business rules to them and then do a kind of big mail merge and then send uh, right at the end, send out, um, you know, emails or SMS. And um, for a lot of that, it's a sort of, you know, the, the, it, it's almost like a pipeline. So information flows through the system and gets, you know, transformed, has business rules applied. You know, we decide whether we care about it or not. You know, it gets it gets uh, formatted into something that looks like an email and then gets sent to a system that can send the emails off. Mm-hmm. So for most of that, it's really just a question of passing the information on to the next stage. We don't really, the thing that's passing it on doesn't actually need to know what's happened to it. It just needs to say, well, okay, I finished my job. And, and the next thing in the, the next stage in the process then picks that up and, and, and does what it needs to do and then announces to the world that it's finished. So part of this is just understanding that, that architectural mindset of separating your concerns and you don't really need much more response than that. But in scenarios when you need a response, is there a particular pattern you prefer for how to get that response? Uh, yes. Well, when you when you need a response, when you're actually asking uh, another service to do something, then you build, you build request response um, with queues, and you simply treat the queues as you would, um, you know, the, the 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 TCP connection, I guess, if right. you were, or or the request and the response from the the web request. You know, it's all asynchronous under the hood. Yeah, it's just it's more obviously asynchronous when you're dealing with queues. So you have a you, you know, you you, you for a request response, for example, the way we do it with EasyNet queue is um, you. You publish the message onto a onto a queue. The responder picks it up, processes it, looks in the um, reply header, reply to header, right, and then targets that back to the to the queue that the requester has already set up to receive the replies on. And so, I mean, the essence of this is now there's two queues: there's an outbound queue and an inbound queue. Exactly. Yes. Does the await keyword in C sharp help? It could do, yes. I mean, that's certainly something I'd like to put into um, look at putting into EasyNet queue. At the moment, the API is all based around callbacks, so we have um, we have delegate callbacks for both the subscribe and the request response. And what about reactive extensions for callbacks? That could work quite nicely, especially for um, for subscription. If you wanted to do sort of complex, you know, if you wanted to merge message streams and do some fancy logic around that, then the reactive extensions would be really cool for that. Certainly, one of the guys um, I'm working with is really into F sharp, and um, and and he's he's sort of wrapped a, a kind of enumerator or an iQueryable around the end of um, the subscription for um, EasyNet queue, and he's doing all sorts of clever stuff in F sharp to to um, process the messages. It's uh, yeah, that's some pretty cool stuff you can do, definitely. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, 
All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right. So I think we sort of laid down the foundation of that, the whole queuing behavior. So what's distinctive about RabbitMQ over, say, MSMQ? Okay. So MSMQ is, is fundamentally, it's a store and forward queue. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's, um, you know, it's an addition on the operating system, really, isn't it? If you've got services sitting on a number of boxes and you want them all to communicate with each other, then the sort of standard pattern is for the thing that's receiving the messages is to have the queue sitting on the same box that it's sitting on. And then the thing that wants to communicate with it, push the messages to it, pushes the messages to that box, the queue on that box. Right. So you'll end up with a topology of queues sitting on, you know, various queues on various boxes. So you enable MSMQ, you'll install MSMQ in, in, in all the servers that you want to, you want your messaging components to work on. And um, so effectively, it's got a distributed model. Mm-hmm. And it's a point-to-point model as well. So when component A wants to talk to component B, it actually needs to know where component B is, and that needs to be configured too. Yeah, so it's got a store and forward queue. So it gives you the benefit of that temporal decoupling that we talked about earlier. Yep. But um, it's, it's, it's point to point. It's send and receive. It's, um, it's not publish, subscribe. And, uh, and, and other messaging patterns as well you need, to, you need to implement yourself. So what RabbitMQ gives you, it's, it's, for a start, it's a broker product. So it's more like using something like SQL Server, I guess, where you have a, you have a central server product and mm-hmm. a single address for that. And all your components will talk to that broker. So if component A to talk to component B, component A doesn't need to know where component B is installed. It just needs to know where the broker is. So all our, all our pieces that are communicating via messaging, all they need to be configured with is where our central broker cluster is. And, and, then, and, I, and like you said, a cluster. So you need to be able to make that broker is now a single point of failure needs to be made redundant and reliable and da-da-da-da-da. Absolutely. Well, the nice thing about RabbitMQ is it's, uh, it's, it's clusterable out of the box. It's scalable out of the box. So it runs on top of um, Erlang. Mm-hmm. Shall, I, shall I talk a bit more about Erlang? Well, we love Erlang. <laughs> Have you had Joe Armstrong on the show yet? No, but we've had Brian Hunter. Oh. You know, we've had some pretty serious fans of Erlang along the way, and Oh, cool. uh, and we're still wrapping our head around it, but and I love the fact that RabbitMQ is built on Erlang. That just makes sense to me. That yes, that that sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it's very cool. I mean, don't mistake me for anybody who knows anything about Erlang. By the way, <laughs> 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 I've got Joe Armstrong's book sitting on my bookshelf, but I've uh, I've only read the first couple of chapters. So uh, yeah, um, yes, but that the, but, but it's not RabbitMQ itself. It's the Erlang platform that gives the. Um, that, that that gives that sort of that, that scalable clusterable platform so that that sort of comes with the erlang piece rather than being a part of rabbit mq but rabbit mq leverages all that sort of underlying technology so and just to sort of flesh this out rabbit mq open source uh, it's related to vmware somehow yeah so um RabbitMQ, this is, I, I might be wrong here, but this is my understanding of it, mm-hmm. was, was originally um, created by 
uh, a London company, a small London company called L-Shift, who has since bought by Spring Source, which is in turn is owned by VMware. Follow the chain of acquisition. The chain of acquisition. So, so RabbitMQ is a VMware product. But still open source. But it's still open source, yes. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's free as in beer and free as in, uh, in freedom, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think they, they'll, they'll sell consultancy around it as well. So if you need that sort of um, big enterprise backup, it's there if you, if you want it. For sure. Okay, so then I'm putting my IT hat on here, that if folks <laughs> want to run at RabbitMQ, then I've got to go get this thing, set it up on a server, configure it correctly, run it redundantly so that you have this nice sturdy broker to work with, and then developers can, can start communicating with it. Although it doesn't sound, I mean, it is a queuing system, so it's just not that heavyweight. This is not going to need a tank of a machine to run. Yeah, well, it depends on what you're doing with it. I mean, if you've got if you've got the throughput, then you you know the more hardware you throw at it, obviously the better. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've um, we run it on a on virtual Windows 2008 64-bit machines. Um, we don't even see you know small percentage points of CPU usage for what we do with it. So right. it seems to, you know, that we, we haven't even approached its sort of scalability limits. I'm thinking about 15 below pushing through hundreds of millions of passengers. Like that, that's a lot of, of messages. Yeah. I mean, the hundreds of millions from that uh, blog post, that was, over, that was over a considerable period of time. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> Not hundreds of millions an hour. Than, we don't do hundreds of millions an hour. No. I think we might do, we might do a million in an hour, I guess, or in a couple of hours, probably at our peak times. Okay. So, uh, yeah. but, but it copes perfectly well with that. We haven't had any. We, we certainly, uh, the funny thing was when we actually started using RabbitMQ is all our scalability bottlenecks migrated out to our services. It sort of, it, it sort of showed us where the problems were in our app, actual application code mm -hmm. rather than in the infrastructure itself. Whereas before we'd been fighting SQL Server the whole time, trying to get SQL Server to perform well enough to actually, you know, en enable us to sort of process the amount of stuff we wanted to process. But, well, and um, I cannot tell you, as a guy who does a lot of performance tuning, how many performance arguments start with SQL Server. Sure. Right. And we've right. got some really good SQL Server guys at 15 Below. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's not as if we don't know what we're doing. You know, sure. So yeah, it's just, you know, you're asking SQL Server to do things it's really not intended for. Exactly. Yes. And uh, yeah, I wrote, a, I wrote a blog post uh, not that long ago about um, you know, databases queue anti-pattern. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely doable. And for a small scale, it makes, you know, it, it makes sense if you've, if you've already got SQL Server expertise and you know what you're doing. But um, it just doesn't, doesn't scale particularly well. Whereas uh, 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 something like RabbitMQ that's, that's designed from the ground up to do that job yeah, you know, I, I, SQL Server is like this dump truck in all the good ways, right? Reliable, yeah. robust, moves a lot of data and so forth. Then you ask it to go faster and faster and faster. Like you're trying to turn it into a race car and you're wondering why you're struggling. And it does lots of things for you that you don't necessarily need with, with uh, you know, when you move to a messaging architecture. But things like sort of... Um, all the transactional guarantees, you know, the ACID guarantees it gives. Right. We, we don't really care about that so much. 
you know, we care about eventual consistency and, and auditing in order to make sure we've done the job we say we're going to do rather right. than rather than sort of transactional guarantees. We found that, you know, transactions really don't work on over a sort of widely scaled system. I mean, not that queuing doesn't give you guarantees. Like message delivery is guaranteed, right? If you if they if the queue says it got it, it's really, really got it and it's not going to lose it. Yes. Unless it does. <laughs> Unless it does. <laughs> Well, you, you do find it's easy to guarantee at least once delivery. Right. Actually, the, the guaranteeing once and once only delivery is slightly more problematic. So it's good if you can write idempotent services, you know, a service that can get the same message twice, and that's not a problem. Yeah, and either it, it, it's okay to process it twice, there's no consequence, or you know you've done this before and you don't do it again. Exactly, yes. You know, some things, some things by their nature, they, they, it doesn't matter. You know, if I'm... If I'm you know, updating something. If I update it again to the same value, then, you know, then that's fine. If I'm deleting the same thing again and it's already deleted, you know, you can write things, well, you know, I don't care. That's, that's, that's great. So it's actually, it, it, it's, it's, it's not quite as hard as, I mean, there are scenarios when it's, when it's tricky, but. Um, but it's also a way of thinking that, that item potency is just sort of, pro, even an update. It's like, check to see if the row already looks like this. If it does, don't bother updating it again. Yeah, exactly. So you can serve yeah. the same, but that's, you know, that's a that's just a bit of thinking, right? Mm. Just a little logic. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And today's winner, Gustav Dahlman from Sweden. Ah, congratulations, Gustav! Golf clap for you, sir. And uh, he replied to my email saying, wow, didn't see that one coming. You really put a golden edge on an ordinary Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. So it's uh, the uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection is everything Telerik does in one box, the $2,000 value. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and become a member of the fan club. We have thousands of members, and every show we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Uh, Rob Corbett was our winner last year. He got a custom-built PC. And we'd like to ask our guests, Mike, if you had five grand to spend on technology, what would you get? Five grand to spend on technology. What, yeah. any technology? Any toy you like. Anything you like. Wow. I don't know. The toys I've been looking at recently have been rather more than five grand. Ooh. I was looking at, um, you know, the uh, Tesla Model S? Uh, that's car. rather more than five grand. Oh, well, we could I put know, a down yeah. payment on it for you. But a put lovely a toy. Yeah, in fact, I think the deposit for holding one of the advanced units was exactly $5,000. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to follow it with another 80 or so, but, you know. I know. It's a we could get you to... started. <laughs> but I think, you know, the, the electric cars, their time's coming, definitely. It's, yeah, um, I agree. And uh, it's it's on my list. I've been looking hard at do I want to take one. Don't you have a deposit mm. on a Model S? Uh, that's why I happen to know what the deposit amount is, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, so, But it, you, you do have a – all it is is give you a place in line. Now I can say, okay, give me my money back. I'm not going to take the car. See, we really didn't know at the time when we were going to get it. So, mine's coming up. I've got to decide. I'm not even sure whether they're selling them in the UK yet. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that they are. Yeah, no, they probably they probably got a, a a pretty long waiting list in uh, in the US already. So, uh, yeah, for for sure. But a great great gadget, and it basically I've sat in one 
the center console, all of the controls. It looks like, imagine two full-size iPads stacked one on top of each other. That's the center yeah. console. I know, yeah, I've seen pictures. It's enormous, isn't it? Yeah. It's enormous, and I think it's actually very dangerous because when your car looks that cool, you stop looking out the window. Ah. Ha, ha. But it's got cameras, though, so you can look at the camera instead. <laughs> <you know. laughs> <clears throat> got cameras all around so you can see the guy that just ran into you. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. And play it back yeah. repeatedly. <laughs> Turned it into a video game. <laughs> you um talked about the broker, and I'm wondering... Yes. Um, What's the difference in the relationship between, say, a service bus with queuing and RabbitMQ? A service bus. Uh, a message bus. Well, a message bus. I mean, it does act like a message bus in a way. I mean, you know, a message bus is more of a sort of conceptual view, in my thinking, rather than well, bro when you talk about a broker, you're talking about a sort of physical server product. If you look at something like mass transit or, or end service bus, you know, in, in the message bus there is is a sort of conceptual idea. You know, there is no actual physical message bus with mass transit. It's just orchestrating a lot of MSMQ relationships. So, um, you know, as far as, I mean, in EasyNetQ, the, the main API is, uh, mm -hmm. is implements an interface called iBus. So we definitely talk about it as if it were a message bus. So they're very similar things. They are similar things, yes. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the sort of conceptual side of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like Certainly, you said, Mass Transit is built on RabbitMQ. Mass Transit has a RabbitMQ backend, doesn't it? Right. I mean, the original, the original Mass Transit was a, definitely built on MSMQ. Right. But it just it sort of oh, speaks to this idea that this is a core messaging technology that these other, uh, you know opinionated frameworks about how we're going to handle things depend on. Yeah, exactly. And that's what EasyNetQ does. I mean, EasyNetQ, I mean, I borrowed a lot of ideas from, you know, I stole, I stole shamelessly from N-Service Bus and Mass Transit when <laughs> I implemented uh, EasyNetQ. That's you know, a Robert Frost guy. quote. Immature poets <laughs> imitate, mature poets <laughs> steal. Absolutely. Real it was a good steals. idea over there. It's a good idea here. <laughs> Absolutely. I was having a, I had a conversation with um, with uh, with uh, Chris, you know, when I was first doing um, EasyNetQ, asking him what he thought of the different sort of pattern ideas. And mm -hmm. he said, that looks just like I've seen that one before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole idea of using using message types as a sort of routing strategy is all borrowed from from uh, mass transit and mm -hmm. in service bus. So um, that's not something that's at all in RabbitMQ. Maybe I should talk a bit about why why we decided how we ended up building EasyNetQ. Absolutely, sort of circumstances led to it. So um, if you if you install RabbitMQ and then you go to the website and you think, well, how am I going to talk to RabbitMQ with a you know from .NET? They they do supply a, a C sharp client or a .NET client. Um, you can get it on NuGet. Uh, as well, and um, when you start looking at the API, it's quite a it's quite a low level API. It implements um, this protocol AMQP, Advanced Message Queuing Protocol, which is an, an open standard for messaging. But it's a bit like it was a bit bit like writing a web server with um, sockets, for example. Who would do that? An AS, ASP Net. You know, you're talking you're talking about. Uh, 
all the messages are, are byte arrays, and you have to have quite an intimate knowledge of the exchange binding queue topology inside RabbitMQ. You also have to do things like um, you know, connection reconnect. If you lose the connection to the broker, you have to you have to have sort of uh, connection polling sort of things going on, and and uh, you have to you know what happens if your if your sort of application code throws an exception. You know how how do you handle um, failure? How do you um, and how do you sort of serialize deserialize your messages? So there were lots of when we started looking at it, we realized that we were going to have to write quite a lot of code. To to sort of make our code successfully talk to RabbitMQ using the the RabbitMQ supply client, and um, and then actually you think well okay you know we don't want to you know we don't want ever every developer in in the organization each writing their own version of this code, and uh, you know each having to solve the same problem over and over again. So we needed a we needed a client library. To talk to the RabbitMQ client library, a kind of an ASP net for for AMQP, if you will, and that's really how um, EasyNetQ started. So we borrowed those ideas from Mass Transit and N Service Bus, the idea of using um, uh, messages as a sort of routing strategy. Mm-hmm. So I guess that begs the question: When would we use one over the other? When would you use? When would you use one over the other? When would you use? You know. Um, uh, and service, yeah, master ends at end service bus versus RabbitMQ. I think um, what I'd like to say, if you if you were if you were using, uh, if you want to use RabbitMQ, then EasyNetQ is actually built, you know, from the start as, right. as simply as a, an AMQP, a RabbitMQ client. It doesn't do anything else. It's not. Um, whereas both end service bus, does end service bus have a RabbitMQ backend? I'm Probably. not I sure. Um, but they are they are big libraries, and they do a lot of what RabbitMQ does internally. So there's a lot of work in Mass Transit to implement um, uh, publish subscribe, where you don't have to know where your subscribers are and request response and all these messaging patterns. Whereas that's done for you out of the box with RabbitMQ. So. I imagine that the actual—I mean, I haven't looked at it in in, in detail—but I imagine that the, the the sort of pluggable backend for mass transit it either uses a very small subset of RabbitMQ's um, features, or or it doesn't use an awful lot of its own features. If you see what mm-hmm. I mean, there's an awful lot of that overlap. EasyNetQ is a very thin library, effectively. It's a it's a it's a sort of thin wrapper over the over the sort of the capabilities of, um, of RabbitMQ. So here's Udi Dahan's reply to that question from 2010. Oh, okay. End Service Bus is a higher level framework than RabbitMQ, providing support for long running processes as well as unit testing libraries for your message based logic. And in fact, people have swapped out the MSMQ layer of End Service Bus and plugged in RabbitMQ in its place, giving the best of both worlds. Yeah. So we get back but, to I mean the earlier conversation about MSMQ being this sort of standalone service running on all these different servers and, and you know just store and forward versus RabbitMQ's clustered broker model, very different mm-hmm. architectures. And then on top of this, you can layer a service bus architecture, which is a bigger thing. You know that that's a very opinionated way to build software. Not I'm not saying good or bad, just a specific way. You seem to be a thinner layer. Okay, so you mm-hmm. want to use queuing? Let me help you. Right. 
Yeah, it's a very thin. Well, it's a thin. It's both. It's both of those. I mean, it's a thin layer, but it's a very opinionated thin layer. I've, right. We've got very strong opinions about how you're going to do your messaging. I love that. Yeah. It's an opinionated layer. <laughs> well, yeah. The funny thing is, though, I mean, since we, we open sourced it, which is which has been a fantastic. You know, the response we've been getting from people, and and you know, the great thing about open sourcing your own framework. You know, if you're building an internal framework to solve a problem and you open source it, you get all these people fixing your bugs for you, <laughs> creating features for you, doing your work for you. It's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and raising the profile of your organization. I think a lot more people have heard of 15 Below now than would have done before we started doing EasyNet Q. Nice. So it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful. Oh, and the other great benefit of it is, is that it's, it's enabled us to recruit a much better kind of quality of developer than I think we were able to before. It's sort of given us a bit of a, a reputation mm -hmm. in the local dot. Oh, you're the guys who do EasyNet Q. You know, well, that sounds exciting. And I imagine the most uh, desirable people that you want to hire have worked on it. Yeah, we haven't actually had. We almost had that situation. A guy from uh, Sweden who submitted a few um, pull requests to, uh, to EasyNet Q then talked about coming and joining us. But uh, he, wanted, he wanted to get away from a cold, wet country. And so coming to coming to England from not from really. Sweden. <laughs> but you're on the south coast. I thought that was the Bahamas of the UK. Yeah, well, you ever heard of London fog? <laughs> it's quite nice for a month a year. We have a kind of month of nice lists around mm. sort of July, August, when you can sit on the beach and uh, swim in the sea and and whatnot. But, yeah. Yeah, it's it's raining and cold. We had snow the other day, so uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean. Sorry, I got a bit off the track there, but um, the whole you know, open sourcing our internal library has, has been a fantastic experience. You know, it's really, really sort of pays tribute to um, um, the guys who run 15 Below that they were they, they saw the logic in that. I think a lot of places would have said, you know, why would we want to open source our own IP? Mm. You know, what, what's, where's the sense in that? But it's really paid dividends. And, and it's just a GitHub project? It's a GitHub project, yeah. It's got a website, um, easynetq.com. Um, and from there, you can get to the GitHub project and all the documentation. It's on NuGet, so you can you can just do um, install package EasyNetQ, and then go with that. And it really is incredibly for the for the simple case where you just want to do publish, subscribe, or request response. It really is. It's just like three or four lines of code. Very easy. I mean, and that's the implement. You do have to stand up the infrastructure piece. This is not a not a zero effort thing. Set up a VM like you've done. And, uh, and actually get RabbitMQ up and running so you have something to talk to. You do. Yes, you do. But that, I mean, it's, it's RabbitMQ is one of these, for us, we've been using it for um, coming up to two years now, I get about 18 months. And it's, it's been one of these kind of magical black boxes hmm. that you just, we install it. And then it's almost scary how little we've had to worry about it. Hmm. You know, because you think, well, we were, you know, being a Microsoft shop, being experienced in SQL Server and running Windows, it's a, it's a certain we're certainly a little bit apprehensive about using something built on this platform Erlang we didn't really know much about. And um, in a way, I kind of almost, especially in the early sort of development stages we were dealing with, I wanted it to go wrong, so I would get to dig in and sort of like find out its foibles and, <laughs> and get some experience with it. But it never did, and so I didn't. And you sound it's disappointed. I almost am. <laughs> well, you know, I, I commiserate because I, I, you know, it's a shame, but I, I'm one of these guys that just loves digging into plumbing code. Mm. It's fun. 
It is. And I, you know, you get a certain amount of satisfaction sort of digging through Google, trying to find somebody else who's had the same problem as you. And, and, uh, but, uh, no, I mean, if you, if you sit on the, um, RabbitMQ mailing list, you certainly see a lot of traffic mm. about people sort of having, you know, obscure issues with, with RabbitMQ. But, um, for us, it's been this magical black box that just works. Well, in my experience has been that, that queuing infrastructure is remarkably reliable. Like that's not what's going to break. A lot of other things are going to break before that breaks. Sure. Yeah. And if it is broken, it's because it's off. Yes. You need to be careful. I mean, the, the, it does lull you into a false sense of security. I think we've had to be sort of very, you know, sort of kick ourselves and say, come on, you know, we need to make what happens if this does go wrong? Well, just the basics of this is a single point of failure. It is a broker. So I need two instances on separate hardware clustered in some way and some kind of failover strategy. Sure. Yeah. And you need to mirror your cues and, you know, do all that kind of stuff instead of a load balance in front of them. So there's a bit of, you know, if you're if you're serious about putting it into production, then then there is, you know, there's the, but there's very good advice on doing all of that on the RabbitMQ website and you're not breaking new ground doing this. It's been done. It's easy to test. You you get it up and running with the traffic running through it. You, you kill one of them. It should just keep going, you know, actually go through the failure modes. Yes, exactly. You need to make sure, I mean, this is something that EasyNetQ does for you. Connecting to a message broker is different from connecting to a DBMS like SQL Server. Mm-hmm. So typically when you're using a, a, a you know, a, a, if, if you're talking to SQL Server, you will open a connection make a query or an insert or an update, and then close the connection. And that's a sort of recommended way of working with, with, with SQL Server, yeah? Right. And the infrastructure underneath maintains a connection pool and that kind of thing. But as far as you're from your programming model is, you know, open the connection, do some work, and close. So if the connection suddenly goes away, then, you know, things won't work. But when it comes back, they'll start working again automatically right. because you're opening connections and closing them. Um, when you're connecting to Rabbit, so you're subscribing. So rather than you telling the broker what to do, it's kind of telling you. It's saying, oh, you know, a message has arrived. You care about this. So you have to open a connection and you keep it open, typically for the lifetime of your application. Right. So you have to consider the, the point when, you know, if there's a network failure or, you know, for some reason the broker bounces or you need to monitor that and then reconnect. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh, you know that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice, because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah, and it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, twenty years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. But now we get into this whole, you know, usually connected scenario. I have a, a laptop or a... Heck, even a phone, right? That I, that mm. the connection is going to be somewhat unreliable. How do I make sure I reestablish reliably? Yes. So you need to have, you know, you need to build that into your. I mean, this is one of the that was another one of the main things we wanted to do with EasyNetQ was to build all this in as infrastructure, so that our, our application developers wouldn't have to build this into every component that right. that talks about MQ. 
Um, but that was a major, that was one of the, the, the bigger things the, that we had to do with EasyNetQ was to make sure that it did, did that, that reconnection, detected when we'd lost it and then, and then reconnected it, and also what to do when you have lost it in terms of uh, internal queues in EasyNetQ. So what do you do? I, so I've got a message. I go to pass it, not presuming that the connection is still going. Am I going to fail? Is there an error? Or do you store it locally until you get reconnected? Yeah, currently you'll fail. You'll get an exception thrown hmm. when you try to publish a message to a closed connection. And you have to, in your application code, you then have to sort of, you know, wait a bit and then try again. Right. So Can I have a local queue? <laughs> yeah, so... So I'm, we're, we're, we're busy sort of doing a version, sort of version two of, of EasyNet queue at the moment where the actual publish will have an internal queue. So you'll publish into an internal queue and then that, and then there's a thread running in the background that then publishes onto an open connection. If there's no open connection, then it'll, it'll just store them locally until it comes back. It's funny that the solution for queuing is to add another queue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's well, then, usually the case. It is. It is, and it's um, it's interesting where that leads you. You know, so it's very interesting um, reading what the zero MQ guys have to say, because I think they came to that conclusion that really it's queues talking to queues talking to queues talking to queues <laughs> yeah. across the stack. So let's just let's just build an infrastructure that's just about queues, you know, and we'll we'll configure them in sort of networks of queues. It's the double buffering of computer science on the outside. Yeah. So yeah. we're in a queue. We have a, so we're, 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 you know, the next version will have a queue when you publish before it actually gets put on the wire. Then internally, the broker's got a queue. It's obviously the, the queue that you know about already. And then also, um, uh, the, um, consumer side as well has an internal queue. So if you have, if you have sort of five different, um, consumers set up, you, you, you call the subscribe API five times on your, on your, um, in your component, then um, then we have a single threaded dispatch um, loop going, sucking things off this internal queue and then dispatching them to the correct handlers. So yeah, it's a queue talking to a queue talking to a queue effectively. And there was in your delivery mechanism inside uh, RabbitMQ, I suppose there's, or, or maybe it's on your side, if you are unable to contact the client and the client does not receive the message, you that goes in a retry or something, you just come around again. Well, it just sits on the. So the way RabbitMQ works is, um, it so it'll 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 send the message to the consumer. So EasyNetQ in this case, and uh, and then when EasyNetQ is finished processing, it'll send an ACK back to the broker. And once the broker gets the ACK, then it removes the message from the queue. So if you're in a scenario where where RabbitMQ has sent the message to EasyNetQ. And EasyNet queue, and then the connection goes away before, or or if there's a failure on the EasyNet queue side, or something goes wrong, then the ACK will never get back there, and so the message will stay on the queue. I see. This is what I was saying earlier about it's good to have idempotent services because you can guarantee at least once message delivery, but it's quite hard to guarantee once and only once. Because imagine then there's a scenario where it's actually finished processing, it's, it's sort of done some work, but it hasn't got round to the ACK. What if EasyNet queue is down at the time that it tries to contact it? Um, well, if there's no connection, mm -hmm. it'll just sit on the queue in RabbitMQ. And it'll try. It'll try again at a later time. Yeah. So when it when when the um, consumer reconnects, then the the then then RabbitMQ will immediately send the message on the from the queue. There's an interesting scenario as well, but the um, the kind of the, the the work sharing or kind of round robin. If you've got multiple 
consumers on a single queue in RabbitMQ. It round robins them. It sends one each in, in turn to each consumer. So you can add and take away consumers sort of on the fly and it'll just it'll it'll sort of automatically load balance them up mm. and down. Awesome. It's very nice. When I when I talk about EasyNetQ to people, I've got a little demo where I um I um publish all the words out of um out the English dictionary. So you see them strolling up on the screen and then as you add consumers, you see you see different words, the sort of interleaved words scrolling up on the screen. It's quite good. It's quite a good effective sort of visual way of of, of seeing how it farms out the work. And you can add publishers as well. And so you get multiple inputs and then multiple outputs. Well, this is one of the strengths of that whole queuing methodology is that I've now got this disconnection where I can have any number of machines on one side and any number of machines on the other side. You you now can control your elasticity. But are you actually taking on some of that work? You'll decide when to light more instances based on what's sitting in the broker? We don't, no. I mean, we're currently, we've got a sort of an experimental project where we're looking at building, sort of building out our kind of platform as a service idea, mm-hmm. where we will want to sort of um, scale instances of services out depending on load, but that's very much the kind of the experimental stage at the moment. We don't actually do that in production. Okay. We have a team of guys sitting there who think, uh, oh, right, things are getting a bit busy here. Let's uh, let's think what we can do about scaling that up. Sure. Yeah, and it's just how you that I I like queues as gauges of load. That it's once a queue grows to a certain mm. size, you need to add more workers, and as it gets below a certain threshold, you can start popping workers off. That's right. That's one of the indicators in uh, web scaling, isn't it, Richard? That you want to make sure that queue is low. Yeah, I do. I mean, for a happy a happy rabbit is one where there's no messages in any of the queues. Mm. Yes, the correct number of queued messages is zero. Yeah. So if you look at the management UI for, for, for RabbitMQ, which is quite nice, by the way, sort of web-based UI, um, you know, you look at the list of all the queues and you want to see them all. You know, occasionally you'll see a one. It depends on when it polls it, but uh, most of the time you want to see them as zero. Only only if there's a sort of real peak in, in messages, you know, and, uh, and uh, um, you know, would you, would you want to see those uh, go up past that level? Well, we've played games with deltas sort of looking at what is the rate of growth on the queue to decide whether oh, okay. we want to light an instance rather than total number of messages. Mm. You know, they, there's, there's, there's the whole dynamic there. Yeah, um, it's a very uh, interesting. It, it, absolutely. When it comes to large scale stuff, it's really interesting to see how quickly do you light an instance, how quickly do you shut them down? Like, what do you, are you unnecessarily changing things just because uh, you've got a, you had a burst load or you have a consistent high load. There's just there's a certain level of messages coming through. Yeah, we're still very much on the manual stage. We basically have a, a whole load of alerts. You know, if, if, if any of the queues go above a certain level, we kind of, uh, we send uh, emails to people and SMSs to people. And, right. And, and they scramble out of bed and, yeah. and, and uh, see what they can do to fix it. <laughs> it could be a message to a service that lights an instance. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and I noticed a tweet here from Anders Luschberg who says, uh, make sure you thank uh, Mike for having the admin API wrapper in an independent package that was very helpful. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And that was something we needed as well. So it just made sense to put it as you know part of the EasyNetQ project. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense to be in the EasyNetQ assembly. No, right. It's a separate thing. Yeah. Well, and it speaks to this is a product you built because you actually needed to use it, not just because you thought it'd be fun to build. 
Yeah, oh, it's absolutely the whole thing is driven by by real world use. It's not uh, it's not a, not a hobby project. You know, there's a there's a, a multi million pound organisation relying on it. So, do you have some new customers coming up going forward? Um, I don't personally. No, I mean, I'm I'm sort of full time with Fifteen Below at the moment um, right. in sort of my consultancy role. Um, I do have in, I do hear interesting stories though, about other people using it. I put something on my blog just this week. There's a guy called um, Anthony Maloney who got in touch to say he was using uh, EasyNetQ on a project in Kenya. Wow. So this is, a, this is a supply chain for the agribusiness industry in Africa. Huh. So sort of, yeah, African farmers communicating to up the supply chain, I guess. And, um, and they had a sort of SQL Server MVC solution, um, but they were having performance problems with it. And um, they used um, EasyNetQ, and he says it's made a, made a huge difference to... Um, being able to get the scale up. Sounds like that. they were so, doing uh, the same thing with sequels that uh, 13 Below is doing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a common pattern. It's a common pattern. You know, that's also, <laughs> that's when people start looking around to, uh, just to, to, you know, looking at messaging solutions yeah. when, they, when they hit those kind of problems. Yeah, so I was very excited about that. I thought, you know, okay, helping people in, uh, in Kenya. Great story. You know, expect that when you start a little open source project. Yeah, funny, <laughs> yeah. huh? It is a yeah. great story. Hey, uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you this hour, and congratulations on the success. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, no, it's been great. I've been listening to um, uh, .NET Rocks, I think, since around about 2002, 2003. All right. Yeah. Those, when did you start? Those must have been some of your earliest. It was 2002, yeah, August 2002. Yeah. Well, yeah. how would you like a .NET Rocks mug? I would love a .NET Mugs rug. I'm not a Dotlet Mug Sprug. Dotlet Rocks Mug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll no longer be a muggle. <laughs> All right, my friend. Talk to you later. Cheers. Thank you very much. All right. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Dot com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks. Gotta transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a.